0: Today is January the 23rd, 2020. This is episode 2587 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday and I've kind of gone to an alternating schedule because I I do believe some of you guys really like the standalone one topic shows the best. So I've kind of gone from doing a call back, call in show every Thursday to kind of call in show, then a standalone show, then call in show, then standalone. So every other week we get two of those. That's what we're going to do today. And I, I had no idea. Until about an hour ago, it's two o'clock in the afternoon right now. I didn't do about one o'clock because I had some videos I did today. They're on YouTube, but they're not live yet. Of a lot of the hydroponic stuff, I had some stuff going on with my wife. We're making some plans for going down to um, to Belton for the Mother Earth News Fair. I'm going to have to rent a freaking U-Haul van so I can take the stuff down there. I don't want to do it in the back of my open truck. And uh, you don't need to know. It's just there's a lot going on. So I was like, well, since I don't really have a plan. Why don't I go on Facebook, and then I'll just say, hey, I want to do a standalone show, and you guys tell me what you want. Again, I try to do that with Facebook once in a while, Twitter once in a while, it alternates, just to uh, to give the people who follow me there a, a chance to have a, a voice, maybe a little extra voice. Well, there was a bunch of stuff coming in, and I was like, I could do that, I could do that, I could do that. Freaking Jeff Lawton. Jeff Lawton shows up at the TSP group. I don't know if he's ever even made a comment on the TSP group before. And says, food forests for global security, please. And I'm like, you know what? I got to do it because it's Jeff. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just sent a really bang on awesome question that's often misunderstood about Zone 5 forestry to Jeff. Like 10 minutes ago. Uh, due to an argument, not an argument, really more a, de- a debate on the Regenag Ag site, with well, a guy I really like, by the way. He's actually been on the air with us before. And it was on Zone 5, and what a Zone 5 is and is not. So I said, Jeff, tell you what, I'll do this if you'll make sure I get that answer in time for tomorrow's show. Then I went and put the outline together, because whether he did it or not, I was going to do it anyway. Guess what? Got it? So you'll hear that tomorrow. But today we're going to talk about food forests for global security. But I did change the title with, well, two words, because I had to put a conjunction in to make it work. Today's show is Food and Farm Forestry for Global Security. And if the word global security makes you think of, like, collectivism, get ready to strap in for the exact opposite. We're going to start out today with what security even means and why the individual must be secure if the collective is to be secure, why everything does start from the individual level which is where real liberty comes from. In fact, the I, I, I was going to do a quote of the day by Thomas Sowell today, and I decided not to do that. And I'm going to reuse a quote by Jeff Lawton today that I did just a couple weeks ago, just in the, when we actually intro this section. But what you need to understand with today's show is if we're going to look at this, we need to reconsider what we even call a forest. Most would figure a forest is going to be like If you think about the footprint, it's going to be square or rectangle, trapezoid triangle. In some way, it's some sort of large spread out acreage. That's what we think of when we think of forests. But how many trees are in a savanna mimic grazing system like a regen ag system like Mark Shepard's New Forest Farm? I have a picture of New Forest Farm in the show notes today. It's an aerial image, and it's actually from quite a few years ago, so the trees are not quite as big as they are now. But well, you look at that and go, that's a forest. But there's also a lot of open space. So we, we, we have to actually change what we are thinking about when we think of security from the forest or forest food security or forest fuel security. In fact, I'm going to tell you that a forest is not just something that can provide us with food. That's why I changed it from food forest. Here's a, a quick list, and I'll go through these later individually with some concepts about them. Uh, but these are some things that food forests or forest-based systems can vi- provide for us. Food, fiber, fodder, medicine, building materials, which means shelter, recreation, environmental stability. Better what we would think of as conventional agriculture. And conventional agriculture doesn't have to mean let's spray the shit out of everything. And and at the same time, we have to accept that the modern agriculture system feeds the world. And even if we don't like a lot of things about it, it's not going to 100% change overnight. How about fertilizer? How about fuel? How about clean water? And honestly, what more do you need for security than those things? That's all the types of things that forests can do for us. So let's start out with what does security even mean? What does it mean to be secure? We have actually been conditioned to believe that security comes from the state. In fact, what do they always say about what the role of our government is? To keep us safe. To keep us safe. They're going to keep us safe. I'm not that old. I'm almost 50. So I don't consider being 50 to be really, really old. Right? I'm not a baby boomer. I wasn't around during World War II. So when I say the way things used to be, I'm talking about like the 1980s, the 1990s. I'm not talking about the 1940s or 50s. I'm not going that far back. And let me tell you, when I was growing up, and this is this is nothing to do with the political dichotomy, or false dichotomy as I like to call it, because where I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, this is a place where people saw Jack Kennedy as God. Okay? Very, very much... Democrat-rooted in the 1980s in in this part of Pennsylvania. still is today. Uh, In fact, I am actually called Jack. I was named John. I'm called Jack, and my father was the same because my my grandparents on my father's side idolized JFK. So this is not a right-wing talking point at all when I say that if you had told the people that I grew up with, the adults that were raising the, the generation that I was a child in, the role of the government was to keep us safe, they would have looked at you like you had a tree growing out of your left ear with a parrot singing on top of it. Like they would have had no idea what the hell you were talking about because they believed that security was something you provided for yourself. It had nothing to do with politics. And what it had to do with was even when their side was in government, they had a generalized contempt of government. And they generally saw government as incompetent, a necessary evil for stability, not for security. That there might be some things government did that aided security, but in the end, the way you had security was you looked out for each other. And security came from having the things that you needed to survive comfortably. If you had everything you needed to survive comfortably, and most of the people around you did... There would be relative security and safety because there were more good people than bad people. So the people that would harm others just because would be kept in check by the people around them. And yes, things like law enforcement played a role in that, but that was more so you had something to do with the person. Because we knew full well if somebody, for instance, was breaking into somebody's house, it was a neighbor that was going to intervene, the police would only show up to take that person away, make a case against them, put it within the system, etc. It was the neighbor that watched out for the neighbor. And the way neighbors don't steal is when everybody has enough to eat, there's not a lot of call for stealing. When everybody has the basics covered. And that is the root of security for human beings. That doesn't mean there are no bad people that will do no bad things if everybody has enough. What it does mean is the greater the scarcity the less the security. The greater the abundance, the greater the security. And you can look at history, as long as it has been recorded, to the point of pictographs on caves. And you can see that societies in scarcity have a great deal more lack of security than societies in abundance. There's no debating it. There's no discussing it. And if you think government's the greatest thing in the world, it doesn't change anything I said. You can actually believe that. My thesis I just gave you has absolutely no impact on your view of government. It has only to do with the fact that security from a human standpoint comes from a point of abundance. But as we look toward, does permaculture, does regenerative agriculture call on us all to be socialists or something like that, or any form of statist. I will bring Jeff Lawton's quote back around again. I, I brought this quote up a couple weeks ago for a totally different reason. But this is what Jeff Lawton said about permaculture. And Jeff Lawton is the handpicked successor to Bill Mollison, who is the founder of permaculture. And I would argue that Jeff Lawton is the number one teacher and designer in permaculture today. There's No one else is even... I wouldn't say close, but I would say there's no one else that really is a big contender for that title. Here's what he said. I have no political agenda at all and prefer the definition of permaculture design to be sedition, as did my permaculture teacher, Bill Mollison, who is the founder of permaculture. Permaculture by its very nature is sedition. Again, you can actually say, hey, we need a government, we need a state, whatever. I don't try to drag anybody into my anarchist world that doesn't want to come voluntarily because that would be against my own belief, right? You can still believe all that, but we're still down to the standpoint of when you provide your own security, you inherently say, I don't need this other group's protection, which includes the state, and therefore it is sedition because you are now feeding yourself, clothing yourself, and feeding and clothing your neighbors. And when you do that, it is the greatest action of individual liberty you can take. And due to that fact, it is seditious in the eyes of what the state sees its role as. To be your protector, I shall protect myself. To be your provider, I shall provide for myself. Well, then we need to provide for your neighbor. I shall provide for my neighbor. We don't need you. We'll let you know what we need you for, and we only need you for that. And then you can have a debate about how much that is. But first, we must feed and clothe and shelter ourselves and our neighbors. And that's why FARs can provide security. And if the individual is not secure, the collective cannot be secure. Because whenever we hear about any of this concept, what do people say? We have to protect who? The weakest among us and the minorities. There is no smaller minority than the individual. And there is no weaker being against the whole than the individual. When the individual has security, everybody has security. And when I say the individual, I'm talking about All individuals, not one. When all individuals individually have freedom and security, then and only then can we say there is collective security. With each free to pursue their dreams their way until they harm somebody else. Really, really simple. And how does the hell does a forest fit into that? Well, to understand that, we have to actually again define what is a forest? What what makes something a forest versus not a forest? And I think most people would agree that the one thing you got to have, unless we get a little crazy and, well, is this saguaro cactus forest a forest, or is a kelp forest in the ocean a forest? Unless we're going to some kind of outlier like that, and are we making a comparison? Is a big cactus really kind of a tree? When we get down to it, though, the big thing is forests have trees. Forest entries. So, because we think of forest, and we would think a synonym in our minds, whether we realize this or not, for forest would be wilderness. We tend to think of forest as being incredibly large, and again, in, in a, a geometric configuration that is somehow wide and long. We don't necessarily think of a forest as a strip. But if I have a suburb and I'm designing it with a permaculture lens, and instead of having my neighbor's fence and my fence on the back of the property be a common fence where our dogs run back and forth and bark at each other all day long and you know we have to take care of that fence because our dogs can get in each other's yards and you know we can walk up and talk about football games across the fence. If instead of building a neighborhood that way because it's the cheapest way to do it, that's why it's done because it's cheap. And it gets more houses and less space. If instead of doing that we say, well, let's take the back property line and before we put it there, let's put in a swale. So let's find the contours of this place. And then let's lay out a, a neighborhood very much like suburbs are laid out already. But let's let that swale system become a buffer between the properties. And let's plant it with trees. Now, they could be productive trees or it could just be trees, for the statement of just is it a forest? And we had, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 feet strips just between the back rows of all the properties in a fairly large suburb. Everywhere, and this was a pretty big um, neighborhood. Doesn't that collectively make a forest? And I say it does. Will we not have forest creatures living in there? Will we not have the effects of a forest? climate moderation, reduced erosion? Uh, Will we not have all of the features of a forest included? Will we not have seven layers? Will we not in time have trees that are really tall? And then will we not have secondary understory trees for a second layer? Won't we end up with, at the edge of these systems, a herbaceous layer? Won't we have vining crops in there? Won't we have a rhizomial layer, layer in there? Won't we have every layer of a forest take place in that system? Will that, will that system not clean air for us? Will we not have squirrels? And most likely in most of North America, won't there be deer in there? In a lot of places, won't we eventually end up with, with pigs in there? Because there's so many feral pigs in the United States. will we end up with raccoons and possums? I mean, we have those in normal suburbs without any of this. So what is a forest? To me, a forest is an ecosystem based on trees. That's a forest. So a field with, you know, a giant 40-acre field with 10 trees in it is not a forest. But 40 acres can have 10 acres of forest distributed throughout it and the rest of it open, like a regenerative agriculture scheme, savanna grazing mimic system. That is a forest. It is a different kind of forest. Until we understand that we can actually have forests in just about any shape or layout, as long as the ecosystem itself is based on trees. And I would say even that the trees play a significant role in the ecosystem that we're talking about. Then we have forest. So we might have an ecosystem with 10 acres of forest. But maybe there's 20 acres of open land. We don't have 30 acres of forest. We have a 30-acre system with 10 acres of forest on it. We just distribute it differently. And that forest has a massive impact on the other 30 acres. It makes that other 30 acres more stable, more secure, and more productive. And if you go look at any of the farms that Mark Shepard consulted on and helped design, you can't question that fact. You, You can't even begin to question that fact, especially when you look at the conventional farming going on around them. So they create these buffer zones. Next, we have to understand, why is the forest, in my words, in Bill Mollison's words, Jeff Lawton's words, David Holdrum's words, co-founder of permaculture, and many other teachers' words, why is the forest our greatest teacher? Why is it our greatest teacher? Not is it. You know why does everybody say it? Maybe because Bill and Jeff said it and people have a tendency to repeat things. but is it true? I say, I say it is. And the reason I believe that it's our greatest teacher is it has always been. It has always been the source of everything for all life on the planet. If you cut down all the forests, all life will cease to exist eventually. They won't because the forest is so powerful it will grow back. But we we can't live in a planet that is all field and no forest. We could live in a planet that's almost completely forested with no fields. I'm not saying we should. I'm not saying we're going. I'm just saying you could go that way, but you can't go the other way. The forests are more than just the lungs of the earth. They are the entire respiratory and circulatory system in some ways, or parts thereof. We need the forest, and hence, we are beings of the forest. The human being evolved in the savanna, which is where the forest and the field come together. And we sought refuge in the forest. We obtained our fuel from the forest. We obtained our shelter from the forest. And all of the abundance that we experienced in the field, in one way or another, stemmed from the forest. The forest is our greatest teacher because it is literally what gave birth to us as a species. And lesson one of the forest, and this is nobody's claim but my own that this is lesson number one. But the genesis of it is a white paper that I read that was it wasn't really a white paper. It's a transcript of a of a speech or a event that Bill Mollison taught at. And it's just in there, it's one phrase. And it's glossed right over, because that's how Bill taught. He just rambled. And you could take... The thing about Bill is, Bill is like... If you took a TV show, and you got your DVR, and you just hit forward, 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 stop, and you played ten seconds of it, any ten seconds of what that man says can change your life if you dig into it deep enough. It's that amazing. And one of those ones that really, like... I was reading it, because I speed read, and it just hit me like a 2 by 4 in the head. He said, the forest floor is a lake. And he went right past it. He didn't explain it. He didn't say another word about it. He just said the forest floor is a lake. And I could not get that out of my head. And everything that stems from how forests stabilize the planet comes from that individual statement. We as humans... Have an intrinsic understanding of the value of water. Because other than air, it is the thing we can do without for the least amount of time. People say shelter, it depends. If you don't need shelter, (laughs) right, if the temperature is 75 degrees, then you don't need shelter. Because if we're going to go there, then I would say the thing that you can do without the least is security. Because when you don't need security, you don't need it. But if somebody shoots you in the head, it takes, what, a, mil- a millisecond for you to die? right? So if we look at it from a standpoint of the way things usually are, the thing that we can do without for the least amount of time is water. And water provides everything. It provides food. It provides direct hydration. But even our crops without water, you can't put brondo on the crops. you got to put water on them. And then sometimes the plants grow. It provides for our animals, that are both companions and food, if it doesn't rain, society begins to fall apart very quickly under drought. Historically, it's one of those times of famine that results in the greatest lack of security. So water we understand. No forests, your water's gone. No forests, your water is gone. I read one time... There was a journal in this other gentleman's research where he was reading the journals of people who helped settle the West. And this man who was being paid to cut trees for timbers for the mines in, was it in Montana or Wyoming? Said as they cut the forest, he watched the creeks dry. You cut the forest, you don't have water. You don't have water, you don't have life. Because the forest is a lake. Because the forest is a lake. In a foot of forest soil, in even relatively dry conditions, good, fertile, healthy forest, in a foot, you will have a minimum, again, even in relatively dry conditions, a minimum of an inch of water per foot. So if you have a million acre forest, you have a million acre, one inch deep lake. We'll start folding it in half. Half a million, two inches deep. Three, you know, two, uh, quarter million acres, four inches deep. Fold it in half again. You got eight inches, 125,000 acres. Isn't that a lake? 125,000 acres, eight inches deep. Isn't that a lake? That's what the forest is. And that's how we design a forest. We design a forest so that it has that fluff and that consistency to the soil that it grows in to the point where it holds onto water, that it causes water to infiltrate, that even when there is a a, a metric shit-ton flood of rain coming down, it does very little erosion, very little puddling, and it charges up that reservoir that is the lake under the forest, and it it comes out in springs and streams and refills the natural lakes, the natural streams, the natural rivers. It all stems from the forest. Once you understand that first lesson of the forest, then the critical nature of a forest for security for man is impossible to misunderstand. So, let's talk about how different types of forests that we actually plant and manage, that can produce food for us, among other things, fit into this. How does a small backyard forest fit in? The small backyard forest is going to have very little effect on how well the stream down the the road runs, let alone how well the rivers that run to the sea run. But it has a localized effect. First, it provides some huge level of security from a standpoint of knowing there is a resource available and increasing the value of the land that you steward to the individual who's put it in place. It has the ability to create community around it. You have a place with a really awesome, and it's not even just forests to do this, it's people that have just really awesome backyard gardens. Entire communities and neighborhoods kind of circle around them, because intrinsically we know. Because as a, as, a, as a species, before what we call modern civilization, everything happened around the concept of the forest. It's where we gathered around fires at night in villages, small bands of groups, and hunter-gatherers. And shared with each other. The small backyard forest mimics that. It's also an example of what can be done. It's a teacher. The person who grows a backyard food forest becomes a teacher. I don't know of anybody that's put one in that didn't create at least two more. You keep that cycle going for a while and pretty soon all those little backyard forests add up to hundreds of thousands or millions of acres of forest now distributed and now they start to have a collective major result. But they can feed us, they can teach us, and they can protect us by providing security at the individual level. How does regenerative agriculture fit in? Well, I want you to think about the fact that for all the talk of regenerative agriculture and, and all the wonderful things it can do, it, it, it is not the best solution for everything. Regenerative agriculture, as we think of it, is probably not the greatest solution to grow, as I was saying recently with some discussion about how hydroponics fits into the world, lettuce and basil. If you go to talk to somebody who's like a master of this type of of, of farming, like Mark Shepard, and say, I want to grow 100 acres of lettuce, he will tell you you're going to go broke you want to grow chestnuts and apples and plums, and maybe you do some alley cropping in their interim, but you're doing this so that you can build out this full-scale system. So there are places that regenerative agriculture doesn't really work the best. Maybe some of the principles can be applied in that backyard forest. I have a three-quarter acre forest that, I, that I've built, and there's a lot of those principles there. There's even a duck flock that mimics grazing ruminants because it's too small for grazing ruminants. But it's... It's still not, I'm not going to be dragging a yeoman's plow through there because I'll destroy it on my rock shelf that I'm sitting on top of. Where does that work best? Farm country. Farm country. If you've ever driven across real farm country, and it's not just the Midwest, you know, drive through southern Arkansas, northern Louisiana, you will see millions of open acres of relatively flat land in monocrop fields. Millions of acres and almost nobody living there. That's all land that's rife for conversion to this regenerative agriculture thing. And then, yes, go up through the Midwest. Billions of acres. So let me ask you a question. Just get your mind going here. If we were to take 10% of that land, just 10% of it, And stop farming potatoes, corns, bean, wheat, etc. Just 10%. And take that 10% into Savannah Mimic regenerative agriculture systems. Primarily developed on strip forest. And maybe nowhere near the density of what Mark Shepard is doing. Maybe 10% of the land at 20% of the density and the rest of it open and being grazed or even cropped. How many trees do you think we would need to plant? My answer is I don't know. But having done the layouts for relatively small properties, 50 acres, a couple hundred acres for people, and seeing how many trees it takes to just, oh, I don't know, take a 40-acre property and put trees all the way around the perimeter and then break it into, like, five-acre paddocks on a straight grid pattern just to get a tree count for that. I would say if we were to do 10% of our current open conventional farmland into Mark Shepard-style systems at 20% of the tree density, we're talking over a trillion trees. A trillion. I don't even think you're close with a trillion trees. There's a big pledge going on in the world today. Donald Trump, to his credit, just committed the U.S. to becoming part of it, to plant a trillion trees in the world. I think you'd have to plant a tr- trillion trees into that system just to do 10% of it at 20% standard density. So when people tell me about global warming and climate change and stuff, I'm like, I'm the one that wants to plant a trillion trees. Now I'm not worried about your car but I want to plant a trillion trees. What would that do for our security? And if many of those trees are productive in some sense, what does that do for our security as a nation? And what does that do for global security? The more security the individual is, then the more secure the neighborhood is. The more secure the neighborhood is, the more secure the state is. The more secure the state is, the more secure the nation is. The greater the security, the less need there is to take from others or, or worry about others taking from you. So what does a trillion trees do there? A lot. That's a big part of how regenerative agriculture fits in. Because those trees can be planted close enough that some of them need to be harvested over time, and that's fuel and that's construction materials, just as one example. Many of them can be productive and feed humans. Many of them can be productive and feed animals. That's one piece of one type of forest in a way that people don't even think of forest existing. A trillion trees, even if it's not in a square, is a forest, my friends, and a damn big one. And I'd like to plant one. How about converting cornfields and soy fields into grazing systems? How does that fit in? Even if it's not full-on regenerative agriculture. What if that's just riparian strips and forest strips? Much more laid out. ...than a full-on regen ag. It's still... I'm going to tell you, you do that... ...over 20% of our conventional farmland... ...and you're looking at trillions of trees. You really are. You're looking at another trillion trees. And it all comes from the fact that... ...animals themselves now enter into the carbon cycle. We're not plowing... ...and we're, we're stopping runoff even of conventional agriculture but cold we really are i do believe that this planet is going to have what we th- and it might get worse and it might get better both of those terms being relative we're going to have something that looks like conventional agriculture for another 100 years minimum buffering that is so important it's so important, and I'll, I'll save a little bit of that as I go down my list of things forests provide because there's so much that happens to our oceans, our rivers, and streams because of agriculture that forests can, can stop, quite honestly, forests and earthworks especially. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how climate change fits into this and does more than any kind of a, a carbon tax ever could. I'm called a climate change denier because I don't believe that if you cut CO2 emissions, you're going to fix our problems. That's why I'm called a climate denier, in air quotes. I don't even care if it helps. It's not going to fix our problems. Our problems are from deforestation, desertification, erosion, topsoil runoff, nutrient runoff. We, You don't have to look at global climate to see climate change. When you can go to places and you can look at a picture from 1955 and that place was green and today it's a desert, that's not because of the global climate change, it's because we screwed that place up, mostly by cutting down forests. You want to worry about carbon? Plant trees. You want carbon to go in the soil? Plant trees. You want more rainfall? You get that from tree transpiration creating its own individual rain systems. Something Bill Mollison said 30 years ago was mocked for, and then you know, five years ago, regular science said, hey, look, we can actually even tell um, where the rain came from, whether it's tree-effect rain or lake or, or, or ocean-effect rain, by the density of the water molecules. What? Isn't that what Bill said? Yeah, but he was wrong, because he didn't know how. I mean, we can create entire... Systems that actually affect local weather by planting trees. We can restore streams by planting trees. We can, we can clean up streams by, by planting trees. There's streams where I grew up and, you know, where I grew up was, there was a lot of mining and there were a lot of mills. And there was so much toxin in some of those waterways that not just the people that live there, like environmental scientists were convinced that it would be 200 years under the best circumstances before those streams would really turn around and come back to really supporting life again. In the 1980s, a series of environmental initiatives there capped the pollution. So, it, okay, it's bad, it sucks, but we're going to stop making it any worse. We're not going to make this any worse. No more. All the mines that are leaching, old mines, have to be capped. They put massive clay liners in and they filled the holes in and they stopped the the, the sulfur and everything from running into the streams and the groundwater. They didn't even get it 100%, but they they made an effort. And all these mills and stuff were forced to put in new systems and stop just dumping shit into the waterways. And they said, we have to do this. But it'll be your great great grandchildren that see trout in that stream again. This is the nineteen eighties. Nineteen ninety-three. I got out of the army. And I told my dad I was gonna go fishing. He said, Hey, there's this uh, you know where the Pizza Hut down here by sixty one is and all, and that stream that goes through it. I'm like, the shit, creek? He goes, Yeah. He goes, You should go fishing down there. I said there ain't no fish in there. He said, There's brook trout in there like you wouldn't believe. I go down there and I start pulling these brook trout out. They're 14, 16-inch long native brook trout. What's going on? In about a decade, since the area is so forested, the forest did what science said would take a, a century or more to do and clean that stream. All we had to do was leave the forest intact and stop screwing it up. You want to improve... The global ecosystems, you put more forests in. And there's no reason those forests can't actually produce things for us. So we don't have to have all of that be wilderness. It doesn't all have to be oaks and maples, which are productive anyway when used right. It doesn't mean we can't ever cut any down. So let's talk about the things we can get from a forest. And this isn't even all of them. Food. This is the one everybody thinks of, everybody leads with. That's why we call it a food forest. Fruits and nuts are our primary food, but there are trees that actually produce herbaceous uh, material that people can eat and consume. So I'm not going to go long on food because I think people get that you can eat an apple, you can eat a plum, you can eat a chestnut, you can eat a walnut, you can eat a pecan. We have a huge outlay right there of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. We have oaks that are incredibly low tannin, that can literally replace grain if that's what you want to eat, that live for hundreds of years, and at the end of their life produce the most amazing, high-quality timber you can even imagine. And they self-propagate. And they feed animals, including livestock and wildlife, while they're growing. And they provide shelter. They do all the other things that we talked about. And that's the ones that grow by themselves. When we start looking at man partnering with nature as co-creator and co-designer of forest, and speeding up secession, no matter what the ecosystem is, unless it's just one where forests don't grow, unless it's just too cold. So inside, you know, the, the Arctic Circle and the Antarctic Circle, parts of that is out. The rest of it, you can put in productive forests that will produce food in most of the world. And if we can, one thing we always have to think about is what does the system, when we say a food forest, if I I build and manage a forest that's primarily native trees and that forest is full of deer, is the deer, is the deer not a food product of the forest? And I say yes, that it is. More, I'll say that if it's a savannah mimic grazing system, and we expand our forest to be an ecosystem based on trees and i have cattle or chickens or turkeys or anything or pigs that are living on the pasture in between the strips of forest that that meat is a product of the forest so that anything from a squirrel i shoot with a 22 to a deer that i harvest with a bow to a cow that's part of that mimic system to a chicken to the egg from a duck that grazes or travels through that forest every day, is a product of food that is produced largely by the forest. Next is fiber. We have trees and, and, and herbaceous species that can produce all the fibers that we need. Uh, one of the biggest movements in America right now, with more and more uh, decriminalization, legalization, etc., is cannabis. Cannabis is, is, and when I say cannabis, of course, people always think about token up and getting high. But cannabis, when I'm talking about hemp, as as people often say, rope, not dope, can provide the fiber for just about everything that we need. And we think of that not as a forest crop. But what have we learned about a forest? It's an ecosystem based on trees. So what if we alley crop cannabis? And I mean, there are straight up trees that we can get fiber from. But doesn't it make sense And we might even be rotationally planting this. Maybe we have a strip-based savanna mimic ecosystem and this strip gets planted with cannabis. And next season it grows some sort of a pasture crop and it gets grazed. And this other strip grows a cannabis crop. And that's fiber coming from a forest system because it's an ecosystem based on trees. There's just many ways that we can get our fibers from forest systems and many of our indigenous cultures long before anybody really thought of you know doing like you know, this boutique design of a mimic system got their fibers from no place else because there was no place else to get them. Additionally, if we do something where we're raising ruminants and you're grazing a, 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 a an animal that produces fiber like sheep just as I see that sheep's mutton, meat as a product of the forest, I see grazing that sheep along the edge of forest, which strengthens the forest and strengthens the pasture at the same time, as fiber produced by the forest. Moving right along with that, how about fodder? We just had Nick Ferguson on. We talked about fodder trees. Um, old-timers called it tree hay. In World War II in the UK, farmers made silage from tree hay and fed their animals through the winter on it That's a product of the forest. We can do forest fodder uh, for our animals in the form of we, we actually harvest it actively and we put it up as silage. We can do it simply by growing ecosystems in such a way that the trees have low branches, the animals are fenced out of the full forest, can graze right up to the edge, and some of their feed comes from the regrowth and they prune the tree for you and keep its, its level up a certain height so it's clear below, so that humans can get in there to harvest other things. Or that we can then graze pigs underneath the trees on the nut mast fall. There's a million ways to do this. Fodder we need to think of as more than just what conventionally we think of, which is the green material of a tree. When we say fodder, we're really talking about livestock feed. Before the chestnut blight, farmers would, because it was more horse and buggy than, than, than vehicle back then, would take, but, take a horse-drawn cart into the forest where the chestnuts and the chingapins were. And I remember reading articles of farmers using a number 10 coal shovel and filling carts full of chestnuts off the floor of the forest as though they were shoveling coal into in, into a furnace uh, a bin, I don't know if you've ever seen a number 10 coal shovel, but man, if you take a look at one and you imagine being able to take that and just r- rapidly shovel a nut mass crop into the back of a of a you know a, a pickup truck in modern times we can redo we can make that happen again. They're doing. I know some people hate genetic modification, but there's actually some decent ideas coming out of that world. Most of it is absolutely atrocious. But if we can restore the American chestnut, additionally they're taking and they're doing, you know, more and more hybridizing with Chinese and American chestnuts to where you're getting a chestnut that's like 98 percent American chestnut and enough of the Chinese chestnut in it to be resistant to blight. And i will trying to tell you right now, I've been to forests in Pennsylvania where I used to hunt deer and white oaks tend to be biannuals. So in other words they have a big mast every other year and in that heavy white oak mast year you will near break your neck walking in that forest it's like walking on marbles so i when i read that i'm like i understand because instead of this you know this nut the size of a shooter marble you're talking about you know a nut the size of like a small orange like a tangerine sized nut By the thousands upon thousands laying on the ground. That's fodder too. When we take pigs and we feed them acorns, that's fodder. Next is medicine. Um, I believe the movie was called Medicine Man. It's an old movie. Sean Connery was in it. I don't remember if the woman was Michelle Pfeiffer or somebody like that. And it was about this guy that went into the Amazon. He was trying to protect it. He was trying to find a cure for cancer. And it turned out, I don't want to tell you in case you've never seen it, even though it's an old movie. But the medicine man was telling him how to find the cure the entire time, and he just didn't understand. And eventually the piece of forest where this one particular thing was, was destroyed. We're we're destroying cures for diseases when we destroy our forests. We don't even know. We don't even know. 1% of what natural ecosystems produce that can be used for human beings. And I would say there's probably 10% that's been lost to history because in our modern arrogance, we have decided we don't need that anymore. And the people that knew are all dead. And their children are dead. And their grandchildren are dead. And all of that knowledge has been lost. But it can be rediscovered. We can grow medicine in the forest. We can grow medicine in between strips of forest. And one of the systems I worked on with Mark Shepard, what we designed was stripped forest. And in the alleys, instead of cropping annuals, we crop perennials. And specifically, we specced out aronias and elderberry. Those are medicines. That's just one example of what we can do. Building materials. So I think it's a mistake to think we should never cut a tree down. You should never cut a tree down. What is the house you live in made out of? And if you don't build it from timber, what are you building it from, and what does that do to the environment? And is it the right material? You know, there's there's places where they build concrete homes they really shouldn't because they're in areas where they get blasted by the sun all day, and when it finally cools off at night, it's actually hotter in your house than it is during the day because all that heat just blasts in like a furnace on you. A high timber frame home makes a lot more sense in that environment. You can talk about straw bales all you want, but it makes sense to build with timber. Let me explain to you something I remember. It was like a National Geographic thing or something like that. and I was so impressed with it. This is the mindset we need to have. And and, and if we have this mindset, we can honestly cut as many trees as we ever need to. And it's as we want as we ever need to. It was a tribe somewhere in the Amazon, and they decided they needed a new canoe. And they make a canoe, a dugout-type canoe. So they get a huge tree, and they remove material, and that makes it a canoe. And the tribe had grown, and the old canoes were, you know, like... They they use these things for generations, but we need a new canoe. we got to have one. So one man was selected to be the man to cut a tree. And then one tree was selected on the land the tribe controlled. And this is not made... This is 100% not a parable. This is a real story. And the man basically meditated for a day before cutting the tree because this is a big job for one man to do by himself and because it was such a a solemn task because that forest is their protector. And when he went to cut that tree down, he spoke to the tree. He apologized to the tree for having to cut it. He promised that they would plant trees to replace it and that he would care for those trees, his children would care for those trees, And his grandchildren, after he was gone, would care for for those trees. That this open space in the forest would not be left that way. And then he spent the better part of the day to fell that tree. And then the tribe came and did the rest of the work of cutting the tree up and turning it into a canoe. There is no reason, if you have that much reverence for a tree, you can't cut one down when it suits what's needed by humanity. They say when if you're going to cut a tree, you plant a tree. If you're going to cl- cut a tree, you plant two the day you cut it. But my opinion is if I plant a tree and I know I'm going to cut it, I should plant a couple trees every year leading up to the eventual harvest of that one. Or I plant more trees than I ever need and I harvest out because there's only so much room for so many mature trees in the first place. We can do that with chop and drop, but we can also do that with harvest. Black walnut stands of those are being planted now where after so many years, X number percentage are taken out and they're made into veneer, and then X number are taken out and made into small timber, and you end up with giant groves of black walnut. Now, I'm not big on monocross, but that makes a hell of a lot of sense. We're using all the space all the time. And that gives us plenty of space that we must harvest. And if we do that responsibly, we can harvest as much as we ever need to build what we need for humanity. And we don't have to do it with monocrop pine. We can do high-quality timber. Because what's better? Harvesting with that much reverence timber that lasts for centuries or with, har- harvesting with re- reckless, reckless abandon timber that lasts for a few decades. You tell me. Recreation. I don't have to say a lot about this. Hey, don't you feel better in a forest? The more that we do this, the more places we give ourselves that are park-like, and whether that be on our own family's land or uh, you know, public spaces, common spaces, community spaces, the better off we are. I won't say much on that, because I think people just universally understand. there's an intrinsic value in the forest from a standpoint of having places that we can be. I remember what I said that the forest is the protector and the teacher. Have you ever been in, 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 you know, not even necessarily old growth, but mature forest? Forest that gets big enough that there's, that once you get in through the edge, all that tangle and mass, it's park like, it's open, like you can see for quite a distance even though you're fully treed. You can walk without being tangled and snagged up by vines ripping across your neck. Have you ever been in forest like that? Is it not like literally being inside a mother? A feeling of protection. Everything's quieter. Everything's softer. I think where you feel it the most is inside a carnivorous, a uh, no carnivorous, <laughs> a conif, conif, <laughs> ah, I said it, now I can't say it right. Ah, con- coniferous forest, pine tree forest, right? Especially in winter. Cold, windy, snow and you you 're in like a, an oak forest where all of the the leaves have fallen because those trees are deciduous, and you go into a stand of evergreens, a big mature stand of evergreens where there's room inside them, and it 's not as cold it 's not as windy it's quiet it's sheltered there's just an intrinsic value in that experience that we would you know put under the generic umbrella of recreation environmental stability. We have a dead zone that's like the size of freaking the state of Maryland in the Gulf of Mexico every year where the Mississippi River dumps into the Gulf of Mexico. Every year it starts, it expands, and it pretty much kills everything. What does that is not your car. It's not your exhaust pipe. It's the fertilizer And the natural nutrient in the form of animal manure and organic matter and soil that washes into the Mississippi and all of its tributaries and concentrates and trucks on down one of the largest river systems in the world and then dumps out and slows down into that salt water of the Gulf. It hits that delta and it just builds up a nutrient concentration Algae levels go through the roof, oxygen levels drop through the floor, and everything dies. Do you know what will fix it? It will help to add earthworks to this plan, but in, in, in essence, what you need are forests. We need forests. We have places that have turned into desert that used to be fertile, but the hills around them are now bare, and what used to be there was forest. There are places like that, and you look and you go, well, there's a forest. No, there is a monocrop of trees. There is not a diverse forest anymore. Restore that diverse forest, and those streams will come back. They're not gone forever. The reservoir that holds the headwaters is gone. Replace it, and the stream will come back. When it rains, after you do that, water will soak in to that natural lake that is the forest and restore those systems, restore those springs. Leave it the way it is, and when water hits, you get a torrent of mud. We were in Estes Park, Colorado about five years ago, my wife and I. We went around the backside heading into uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, and it was all dead trees. All dead trees, and it was on the north side of the mountain. As far as you could see, it was dead conifers, spruces. And I said to the guide... What is this from? He says it's from the, the beetles, the blue beetles. And so the beetles go in the tree. They bore a hole in the tree. And then they lay their eggs in there, the grub. And the grub doesn't actually hurt the tree. The tree then fills that hole with a plug of sap and pushes the beetle grub out. And the beetle grub hatches and goes off and, you know, becomes a beetle. What kills the trees is a fungus they call a blue fungus. And the beetles transmit it tree to tree, and it kills the tree. And an unbalanced ecosystem, Bill Mollison had the same paper I was talking about before that I read, called the Phasmid Conspiracy. They basically were destroying the forest, and they're dying in front of us, and we don't see why. And in one way, when the, when the trees fall to the forest floor... The fungus destroy the tree. They eat the tree. They remineralize the soil with the tree. They're the teeth of the forest, in Jeff Lawton's words. And then they return that to the soil and new forest grows. We've so damaged the ecosystem. What I would say is happening is part of Bill's Fast, fast Conspiracy. The fungus is going to the tree before the tree even falls. But I look at this and go, wow, what if we cut all those trees down? Harvested what makes sense, left most of it in place, and replanted it. And the guide driving the Jeep says, hey, Forest Service knows what it's doing. They want to leave it untouched and let nature repair the damage. Okay, well, we screwed it up. We should fix it. Nature will fix it. It's going to take a lot longer. And I turn to my wife and I say, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. They're going to get torrential rains here sooner or later. I know it comes few and far between in northern Colorado, but they're going to. It's either going to be rain or it's going to be runoff from major snow melt. And since there's nothing holding that up, that whole, it's going to wash right around that thing. It's going to go down there and the whole damn town is going to be under a mud avalanche. My wife smirked and said, you think you know everything. Okay. Sometimes it sucks to be right. It was like two years later, here's pictures of Estes Park with mud flowing through the streets. Why? Because we didn't put the forest back. Very harsh environment. North facing slope in northern Colorado. Still shaded out for what little sun it gets by all those standing dead trees. Man could have fixed the damage. But without the forest, how much security did all that expensive real estate have in Estes Park? They rebuilt, but what did it cost? How hard would it have been to put those trees to the ground, lay them on contour, stop the erosion, and encourage the growth of a more diverse system? It wouldn't have been that hard, and that damage went far beyond Estes Park. But I guarantee you, the damage in Estes Park alone was more than the cost of fixing that ecosystem, environmental stability in so many ways. I, I could do just uh, I could do a series of shows just on ways that the environment's better for it. Better conventional agriculture. I kind of you know tap dance on this one on the way through, but the end the end reality being we're going to have people that plow fields and plant soybeans. I don't like it. I don't like it either. I, I think you're much better off eating beef than soy, and beef eats grass, and I'd rather grow grass and feed the cow to grass and then eat the cow. If you're going to you're gonna drink milk or eat cheese, I'd rather feed the cow grass and eat the, and eat the cheese from or the milk from the cow. I'd much rather do that. I think that makes a lot more sense over than you know having the cow live over here, harvesting corn and grain here, and bringing it to the cow in a truck. I, I totally agree, but people are going to do it. It's going to happen. And even if we replaced half of it today, if we didn't do it in a way that uses forests to stop the runoff, we still have an environmental catastrophe, and it's still going to get worse. It's still going to get worse. If we build this multi-trillion tree distributed forest throughout farmlands with all these buffers and riparian areas, even the worst conventional farming will stop destroying the damn planet. That doesn't mean you can do as much as you want, but it does mean what's being done will be massively buffered. Nature has amazing ability to fix things, to clean things, to restore things. People talk about, you know, working with nature. Nick Ferguson and I are, are fond of when people say that, like, you, you know, well, you, you've kind of like done all these earthworks, and now you just have dirt over there. What are you going to plant? People are like, ah, nature will fill it in. Well, first of all, it might fill in with what you don't want, but what Nick and I say about that is, yes, working with nature is great, but you have to give nature something to work with. You made the ground bare. You owe the ground some seed. You cut the forest, you owe the freaking ground some trees. That's how it works. And you will get better conventional agriculture. How about fertilizer? You know, chop and drop. But there are species of trees that actually make ideal fertilizer like either their leaves their tree the branches or seed pods or whatever actually can just be harvested and made directly into organic fertilizers or if we feed fodder to livestock and livestock shits and the shit is fertilizer are we not taking the f- product of the forest and processing it through a cow instead of a compost heap to make a fertilizer in a leader-follower grazing system in a strip forest system where we put pigs and cows and chickens into a leader-follower system where each breaks up the disturbance of the prior. And the ground gets more and more and more fertile, and it's all coming from the root of the fodder through the livestock. That's just another way to look at it. But we can get fertilizer for crops... From forest systems without cutting them down. See, and that isn't that better than the alternative? Because right now the way we do this, and it's why it works, is slash and burn agriculture. We want to put in, you know, another field of sugarcane in Brazil. So a farmer looks and he obtains access to this, this forested land and they go in and they timber out everything that has enough value to do that with. They slash everything else, they set it on fire. And then they plow it up. And when they plant it, guess what? Whether it's sugarcane or corn for ethanol or whatever it is, boom, it grows. It grows like mad for a season or two or three. And then it depletes a little bit. Then you throw some fertilizer on it. Works for a little bit longer. And then eventually we've denuded that soil because it's, it's very fragile soil in the tropics. And stuff just doesn't grow very good anymore, so they cut new forest. And then that grows back to spindly crap that's never quite right unless we design the way that it grows back. And that's how we get fertilizer from the forest because we have all that forest soil, all that buildup. We get the byproduct of the ash and the charcoal. We get all that nutrient from the trees. But what if we left the forest standing and took the surplus beyond what the forest needs to sustain itself and used it for fertility in the open spot in the glades between the trees within a forest-based ecosystem? That never runs out. That never runs out. It never has to be redone. It never has to be done again. And that's fertilizer from the forest. How about fuel? If we build something like a rocket mass heater, we can heat a group of homes from the fallen limbs and litter that we can pick up walking through a relatively small forest. Even if we need more conventional firewood, There are fuel wood trees that we can coppice or pollard. So coppice, we cut it to the ground. Pollard, we cut it, let's say, about head height. We cut it, and then instead of one thing growing back, like a multi-stem grows back. And we can do that with something like black locust in a temperate climate. We can, every seven years, cut one-seventh of the black locust. Never kill a tree. And that system can last a hundred years, and it's one of the highest quality fuel woods we can get. That's just one example. There are, there are literally hundreds of trees that work for this. And there are, there is, if, the, if the trees grow in a place, there are multiple trees that will work this way that grow in that place. So we have coppice, we have pollard, we have full direct harvest in some situations. We have okay, we're harvesting for timber, but then we have. Slash, and the slash is fuel. We have fallen litter, etc. But the biggest thing I think we get, back to the number one lesson with the forest floor being a lake, we get clean water. If you want clean water on the planet, you have to have forests. And you can't just have forests in the form of, well, we have this set-aside wilderness area that's left untouched. You have to have forests right where humans live. We have to start, start seeing ourselves as is actually native species to planet earth which we are. We almost act like we're some alien species to the planet. That we're not supposed to be here. You know like we're like 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 kudzu in Georgia is how people see humans. And we can be that way, we don't have to be though. We belong here. You are native to planet earth. You belong on the planet. So if forest belongs on the planet and humans belong on the planet, forests and humans should be in the same place. We should not build a freaking subdivision where trees amount to each little plot of land has a lollipop tree in the front yard, a lollipop tree in the backyard, if you're lucky. We should be building subdivisions the way I described, with forest throughout them. And it can be done even when poorly designed. Brad Lancaster, we talked about him yesterday on the air um, with the Shed the House dude, right? Went to Arizona. <laughs> Arizona! And not the part of Arizona with lots of forests. Like the desert part. And what Brad did and his people did, they cut out curbs. So you've got your house, then you've got your sidewalk, then you've got your nature strip, and then you got your road. you got and got that buffer in there. What they did is they just took a concrete saw and nobody was looking, right? Because they didn't get permission to do this and they cut out sections of curbs and then they directed the water so when, the, when it did rain, as infrequently as it did, and came trucking down the street, it went into that place, filled it up like a basin until it couldn't hold anymore and then went right back in the road filled the next one up and it kept doing that and then eventually if it, you couldn't get all the water into the ground. It went to the storm drains that it was going to anyway, but like 70% more of it went in the ground than prior to doing this. And then they planted trees. Turns out when you plant trees in a position like that, they grow. So they take these these, these subdivisions in desert climates, devoid of trees, mostly zero-scaped, and all of a sudden they have trees running down them. It looks like you're in, like, Illinois. And they have food and fiber and medicines, and entire little ecosystems coming off these forests in neighborhoods that aren't even designed the right way in the first place. What if you designed that subdivision to do that? It's been done. What if it became a general practice so that humans lived where it was far? And why wouldn't we do this? People always, ah, property values, I don't worry about my property values, ah, property values. The way people say that mostly, it it just makes me think, so what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, is you want to make sure that your grandchildren can never afford to buy a house. Because when people say protect property values, they mean they want the value of property to keep going up. So again, so that your grandchildren can never afford a house. But what if you had two houses you could move into, one was in a neighborhood devoid of trees, brand new. The other is just simply an older neighborhood. Two houses are almost identical, but there's, you know, oaks and elms, etc., all the way up and down the streets, and the whole thing just looks like it's been there for 50 years. Which house are you going to buy if they cost the same price? You're going to buy the one in the neighborhood with all the trees. Guess what? They're not going to cost the same price. The one with all the trees, if they're pretty much equal houses, is probably going to cost you more. Why? Because people value trees. So why the hell are we not designing our neighborhoods to incorporate something that does all this good that people value. Because quick buck, that's why. Because it's so much easier if I'm going to build houses in an area to bulldoze the whole thing flat, put in a perfect grid, and back everybody's yard up, everybody else's yard and crap, every last freaking house I can in there. We need a law. No, what you need to do is stop buying houses in environments like that. If people stop buying them, they'll stop building them. Vote with your freaking dollars. That's how you do that. When you go look at a house from a developer and, like, they've killed all the trees, say, I can't buy a house here. And they say, why? Because you killed all the trees. Because you killed all the trees, and I don't want to wait 30 years for trees to grow back. Besides, there's no place to plant a tree because my neighbor's yard and my yard right there. I can spit out my window, and if my neighbor leaves his window open, I can spit in his face while he's laying in his bed. I'm sorry you put the houses too close together. There's no room for trees, and you killed all the trees. I'm not buying this house. That's how you change that. They sell those houses because we buy them. I know it sounds easy, and it's not. It's not easy, but it is simple. If you want clean water, the answer is simple. You need more forests. You need more trees. And I want to say this to you. When I go food, fiber, fodder, medicine, building materials, shelter, recreation, environmental stability, better conventional agriculture, fertilizer, fuel, and clean water, honestly, what more do you need to be secure? If you can provide that in abundance for the world... How much more security can you give the world than that? But the fact that anyone who really wants to can plant a forest is why it's the place to start. I promise you, there's some, if this is something that matters to you, there is some way that you can become a steward of land. Whether it's through ownership or not, doesn't even matter. But there's some way that every person that hears this show that wants to can come up with about an acre of land, even if it's in three different or four different little pieces. That you can become a steward of. And you can plant trees. And if you are totally dead broke and you can just get a place that you're allowed to do it, you can go to a freaking dumpster and pull apples and pears and plums and peaches out of them. You can go to a park and pick pecans and walnuts off the ground. You can walk in a Home Depot parking lot and pick up white oaks in the fall. You can go to the grocery store and buy a pomegranate. Whatever it takes, and with seed, you can grow a forest. What else can you do with more impact than plant a tree? The old Greek proverb says, A society grows great when old men plant trees. In whose shade they know, they shall never sit. I'm not there yet. Because even though I'm old, I ain't that old. And the trees that I plant today, as long as they survive, I I, I will see their shade. Even if I plant them far away and I don't go back, the shade will exist and I will exist at the same time. But a commitment that I made to myself a long time ago, one day I will be that old man Planting a tree and knowing I will never see its shade. I will never sit in its shade. Maybe I will be buried someday that will be shaded by it. I don't know. But the reason the Greeks said that so long ago is because they understood that everything we have, that everything we've ever had comes from the forest. The forest is our great teacher and the forest is our great protector. I don't know that we can ever return the favor that the forest does as our teacher, but it's up to us to, deter, to, to return the favor of the protector. I don't know the forest can learn from us. I don't know there's anything the forest can learn from us. We can design the forest and, I guess, establish pattern. And that's the way we pay back the teacher's debt. But we can directly protect it. We can protect it by pr- protecting what's left but we can also protect it by putting it back. It's up to us. I don't know that it's a debt that can ever be repaid, but it's one we should be making payments on frequently. Anyway, with that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I know I enjoyed doing it, and it's, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing to me that until about an hour before I did it, I didn't know I was going to talk about it. Uh, if you can't tell, this is an important subject to me. And it's an important subject to me because I do believe it is the only thing that you can do that you can leave behind that truly will make your great-grandchildren's life better. Everything else we do is so impermanent. It's so based on the whims of those around us at a time. But a tree that can live for a hundred or a thousand years can continue to have an impact long after we have rotted and returned to the earth. With that, I hope you've enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to help support the show, consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com where you can learn about all of the stuff that I've reviewed and recommended over the years. And today what I have for you is just a perfect book for this. And I didn't even know again when I picked the item of the day that I would be talking about today's subject. And actually the story of the tribesmen that cuts the trees is in the write-up of this particular thing. It's serendipitous, I guess. But it's called The Herbal Medicine Makers Handbook by James Green. I've said that we can make medicine and grow medicine in the forest and in the edges of the forest. Well, how do you take that medicine and make it into something that you can use? Check out this book by James Green, uh, Master Herbalist. I, I've said this about this book. If I could have one book on herbalism, it would be the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, a home manual. Because I feel that not only does this give you a great list of herbs that anybody can work with safely, it tells you every way that the average person can actually use herbs, whether it's, you know, a decoction, an infusion, a salve, etc. It tells you how to do everything that, you know, the homemaker's going to do. We're not going to do the kind of refining or anything they do at the nutraceutical level, uh, and, and that's not what we should be doing. So check this book out, and remember, if you shop at Spaz, no matter what you do uh, or what you eventually buy, you help support us in the work that we do. I also want to, on, on Thursdays and Fridays, kind of remind you guys about some of the absolute awesome uh, discounts available to those of you that support us with the Member Support Brigade. Uh, if you're going to be planting forests, you need to think about not just the forest, but the edge. The edge is where the abundance really is in forests, which is why strip forests are so amazing. And one plant that belongs in your food forest, belongs in your gardens, belongs in everything that you do is comfrey. And long time ago, I explained how a, a person could set up a small business just propagating comfrey and selling comfrey cuttings, because it was actually hard to find them in, in quantity. And a gentleman started up Marsh Creek Farmstead. And he reached out to me, and he does a discount, and you can get you know a bunch of comfrey cuttings and grow tons of comfrey and get a discount from Marsh Creek Farmstead. And it's one of the things I love about the program I put together with MSB. You know, last week I told you about companies like you know um, Any Seed and Eden Brothers Seed. These are big companies. Marsh Creek Farmstead is one guy who put in some raised beds and said, "I'm going to do this one thing and do it really well," and I can let him have the ability to reach you as well. That's what I've done with MSB, so if you want to support the show and you want to support all of the people that have supported us over the year as vendors, become an MSB member today. It's 50 bucks a year. Use the discounts and get your money back and then some, including discounts on things like trees. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up and this week for Song of the Day, we're doing songs by Rush. And we're doing that, of course, because of the recent passing of Neil Peart, an amazingly talented musician. And as far as I know of, the the only drummer for a band that wrote pretty much all of its songs. That may not be the only one, but uh, as far as I know of Neil Peart, he's the one that you can say that about. Um, this song is... Well, it's Rush's Rush's version of the song that I say every successful band eventually writes. Every band has a song like this. This one's called Making Memories. And it's about being on tour and how great it is and how bad it is. And if you think about it, I mean, everybody who's really successful has a song that conjures this. As diverse as, like, Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue, um, The Loadout by Jackson Brown, uh, it, uh, Leaving on a Jet Plane by freaking John Denver. I mean, like, everybody eventually gets to this place, if they're successful enough, be able to just say, I'm going to put out a song and be able to do it and, and, and get it out there. And I think it's because it is a universal thing. It's something that, that every successful artist or uh, band group of artists together deal with, the, the road, the travel. And I think we learn the most in our commonalities. So you might not think this is related to today's show. And I, I guess had I known I was going to do today's show, I would have saved the trees for today, but I didn't. But the reason that growing a forest is such a powerful thing is because it's a commonality. Go anywhere in the world, go anywhere in the world, and people understand the value of a tree, just like they understand the value of being home. I'm just suggesting maybe we put those two things in the same place. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. From home.